Thank you for listening to the Calvary Chapel Lubbock podcast. Our mission of teaching people to love God by showing them how much He loves us starts right now. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and open them up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, we're going to be there for just a moment. And then also, if you can stick a finger in Luke chapter 2, put a bookmark in Luke chapter 2, that's where we're going to spend the majority of our time. 1 John chapter 4 and Luke chapter 2. This morning, I would look, like to look at one of the most famous and sometimes misunderstood, as, as you could see from the video, or maybe not even misunderstood is the correct way to say it. Maybe um, maybe better said is that we don't understand the timeline as well, like when the three kings were there at the nativity scene, things like that. And sometimes um, as we look at stories of the Bible, we, we, don't, uh, we think we know all about it. Um, have you guys ever heard that phrase, familiarity breeds contempt? Well, I'm not saying that a phrase applies here because we never want to view the Bible with contempt. But if you will, I can coin the phrase today, um, excuse me, familiarity breeds complacency. Because sometimes we're so familiar with something that we don't um, take a deeper look at it. Or sometimes we hear a Bible story that we've known so many times that we just gloss over it because it's really familiar to it. And so we, we risk the danger of losing, losing the dynamic at what is happening in that p- particular moment in Scripture and why it's so wonderful. And I was thinking, you know, that can also happen a little bit with Christmas. Because have you ever thought about what makes Christmas Christmas? It, it's kind of like the United States of people. It's, it's a melting pot. And there's so many different ideas and, and approaches to it that if we're not careful, we can lose the plot and the real meaning of why we celebrate. Um, for some, and you guys can raise your hand if you identify with this, maybe you're more of the creative type, the right brain type of person. Christmas to you is all about the sights and the smells and the sounds. Is anybody like that? All about the decorations, whatever that is. You know who you are, and I know for sure Nikki raised her hand because you're the person that's posting pictures online of your decorations. And you're the one sharing your recipes on Instagram. And, and, and if you love decorations and if that's, if that's the way that you approach Christmas, you are so stoked on the thought of sitting with a hot cup of hot chocolate next to a roaring fire looking at your Christmas tree that you've decorated, just like all the presents underneath it. And it's just like, ah, and you're so excited. And then maybe you're more the left brain direct approach person. You're more analytical and, and you're just very like direct. And you're uh, in hog heaven shopping for people. You're a giver and, and you are on the hunt. I mean, turkey, you know, day ends and then it's like the bell, the boxing bell, ding, 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 because you're at the store Black Thursday, Black Friday, and every opportunity is a deal and every deal is good, you know, wherever that is, because some people are, they geek out about shopping like that. And, and maybe that's our approach to Christmas. Or maybe we're the exact opposite of that person where we're like, it's a commercial holiday. And I'm tired of Hallmark making money by playing Christmas music in July. You know, or maybe we're sick of people that put up their decorations in October when we still have yet to celebrate Thanksgiving. I mean, there are people like that out there. And of course, the stores put out their Christmas decorations earlier and earlier every year. Or maybe, maybe Christmas means something entirely different to you. Maybe um, the holiday season brings up painful memories. And maybe you've experienced a tragedy or a loss during that time. And every time the holiday comes and everyone else is, is gleeful and singing and celebrating inside, you're, you're hurting. And it's not necessarily the Hallmark movie Christmas experience. Maybe it's, it's more painful. Well, whatever the case, we're, we're allowed to feel how we feel. And, and those feelings are based on our experiences and our personalities. But as Christians, there's an added dimension to Christmas, and we should have a whole other approach to December 25th. 
because we should be looking at it through the lenses of Scripture, and it should cause us to fall on our knees in worship, the, literally the lyrics of O Holy Night. And so that's what I'm asking for us to do this morning. If you will do this with me, is can we take a moment internally and ask God to make this old story fresh again and to speak to us powerfully through it? Because my hope and goal for this message this morning is that we would leave here today with a deeper appreciation and understanding of why Christmas is so special to us as followers and disciples of Christ. And to do that, we're going to start in 1 John chapter 4, looking at verses 9 and 10. I'm reading from the New Living. It says, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. That's chock full of, of theological goodness. So let's, let's read it one more time, just for context. Verse 9, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we may have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. These two verses define what Jesus came to accomplish as he is love that came down. They define his mission, and and his mission that these two verses define is threefold. I want to give you those to you. Threefold mission. First and foremost, love came down in a rescue mission. Love came down in a rescue mission. This rescue mission is thousands of years in the making And if you think about it, what Jesus came to rescue us from is an eternity without God's presence. An eternity without God's presence. Flash back to the Garden of Eden. God created man. He he formed some dust and he breathed his life into him and man came alive. And God enjoyed his creation. He made him in his image and he made him on the sixth day. And man looked around and God said, everything in this garden, everything I've made is for you to enjoy. But because God didn't want to take our free will away, he made one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he said, Adam, you can have anything you want. In fact, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a McRib. And next thing you know, you're going to have this wife that you'll be speaking poetry over because she's so amazing. And he said, anything in the garden you can have, just don't touch that tree. Don't eat of the fruit. And so Adam had Eve, and they walked with God in the garden, and they enjoyed the creation that God had made until our enemy, Satan, the serpent, came along, and he started questioning what God said, and and he deceived Eve to the point where Next thing you know, Adam comes up and she's like, whoa, and Adam's like, what are you doing? And she's like, it tastes really good. And so as Eve was deceived and ate the fruit, Adam willfully took it. And when he took it and ate it, it fractured creation. It, it, it separated us from God. Sin into the world at that moment. And so what Jesus did is he came on a rescue mission He came on a rescue mission to rescue us from an eternity without God's presence. And then the second fold aspect of his mission was a redemption mission. He came as a rescue mission. He came as a redemption mission because he came to make us righteous by his sacrifice on the cross. Second Corinthians says, he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin who knew no sin for us, so that we might become his righteousness. And his redemption mission was literally to purchase us with his precious blood. The word there is a a propitiation. It means atonement. He He used his blood as our covering so that when God looks at us, he looks at us through blood colored glasses. And he sees the righteousness of Jesus. So Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came on a redemption mission. And the third thing is he came on a restoration mission. Because what Jesus wanted to do and what he came to do is he came to restore 
that relationship that we had with God. He came to restore that Eden-like, um, that Eden-like activity or, or um, creation. And, and that's what we're going to see happen in the future is it's going to go back to like Eden where we're walking with God in the garden. And God is there and, and we can exist in his presence because there will be no sin. And, and so Jesus came on a rescue mission. He came on a redemption mission and he came on a restoration mission. And so what we're looking at this morning, especially if you love super or superhero movies or comic book movies, it's his origin story. It's the moment in time that the world's been waiting for ever since the fall of man. And this is the salvation of the world. And so we're going to study that story. We're back in Luke chapter two, if you want to turn there. Luke chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Well, first and foremost, let's get some context. If this was a TV show, we'd hear a little voiceover that says, Previously on the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, we find out in the flashbacks that Mary has already been visited by the angel Gabriel, and he shows up and he goes, Blessed are you among women. And he goes and he unfolds the plan that God has to have her have Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Christ. And, and she is going to conceive him uh, as a virgin. And so he, he tells her, he's the hope of the world. He's Emmanuel. He's God incarnate. And you shall name him, his name shall be called Jesus. And, and so Gabriel has come and he's appeared to Mary. And during this time before our, our text, uh, the Holy Spirit has come upon her and now she's conceived. So she's with child. And also previously on, Joseph was visited by an angel and the angel came and confirmed what God was doing. And so that way, Joseph, uh, he looked at his betrothed, Mary, and he's like, oh, you're pregnant. I mean, think about how scandalous that is even in our time. You know, if somebody gets pregnant before you're married and you're like, well, you and I were supposed to be together, what happened? I mean, that's scandalous for this day and age, this historical age. And so Joseph did not put Mary away. He did not divorce her. Instead, he hid her away so that she wouldn't be shamed for being pregnant, even though it was God's will. And so that's previously on. Let me read verse one again. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all, should be, all the world should be registered. Right out of the gate. Do you know what's so amazing about this story? It's so subtle that we can miss it. The story of the birth of our Savior starts with the words, in those days. In those days. Let me give you a a comparison and contrast. You know what it could start out with? It could start out with once upon a time. You know what once upon a time starts? That starts a fairy tale. You know what in those days starts off? It starts off a historical fact. To me, I can really appreciate this because in this day and age of people questioning what is real and is going, going as far as to deny the existence of very real events in history, for example, the Jewish Holocaust, we as snake bird Christians, wise as serpents, gentle as doves, that's what snake bird means. It means we are going to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. We can point to specific places in history and clearly substantiate our faith and belief in what God says. And that's what we want to do is we can, we can, we can dig, no pun intended, for archaeological finds. And, and we found that in history, as people have found archaeological digs, they can confirm the historical reference by the Bible. It's like, oh yeah, the Bible said that. Uh, I remember um, oceanographers coming and saying, we found these paths in the ocean where the current goes through. And we're like, yeah, Job said that. They're like, oh, you know, and w- there's so many different things that the Bible confirms. I mean, you think about the, the, the finding of the Dead Sea Scrolls and, and having that uh, shore up our belief in Scripture and, and the ancient text that what we have in God's Word is real. It's historical fact. It's not fiction. And so that's what the beauty f- of the philosophy of Calvary Chapel is, and not to toot our own horns, because any church that's teaching the truth and really digging deep is good, because what we want to do as Christians and as believers is we want to study to show ourselves approved 
a worker under God who needs not be ashamed. That's what we do as we study. And so we want our faith in God to be both spiritual and intellectual. That's what's important is God has given us both a soul and a brain. We want to use that spirit and our minds. And, and, you know, in this day and age, it breaks my heart because we see the blindness of this age and we know the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. That's why we have to be on our faces for this world. You know, when's the last time that we, we cried for somebody who didn't know God or who we cried for somebody who we love, who we know is a, is a really cool person who's funny and energetic, but they're just blinded to the, to the, the God of, of, of Jacob, the God of Israel. When's the last time we wept for them and we asked God to reach them? Because I can guarantee you that there are some funny, smart, charismatic people out there who are literally paving the road to hell with their denial of God. And it's not going to necessarily be any clever thing that you or I say. It's going to be the Holy Spirit that reaches them. I gave first service the example of J.R.R. Tolkien, the the famous author of the Lord of the Rings series. He was friends with C.S. Lewis, and he kept challenging C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist. And and C.S. Lewis read the Bible, and it was about halfway through that all of a sudden the Lord opened his eyes, and he became a Christian. And he went on to write one of the most powerful analogies of Scripture that can be reached that can reach children in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the most powerful pictures of who Jesus was in this, in this lion named Aslan. You think about Brian Head Welch from the band Corn. I mean, who would think that a, a band like that, a hardcore rock band, would ever have the gospel reach them, and yet he has radically given his life to Jesus so far as to be baptized in the Jordan River, and he's living for Jesus. And And so it's not us that reaches people, it's God through us. And so what we want to do is we want to have the heart of God, and we want to reach people by being vessels that carry the hope of Christ in our hearts. And so right out of the gate, it says in those days, this is historical fact, not fiction. It's not once upon a time Jesus was born and people go, (laughs) Jesus wasn't real. It's like, yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, historians account for Jesus. He was a real person, and he really came. It says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. So this census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Right here, as our pastor Ben, as our loving pastor Ben says, we need to do some work before we move on. And uh, the history surrounding this is kind of fascinating, and I, I know you're not here for a ninth grade history, but I'll just give you the Reader's Digest version. Okay, so does anybody remember Julius Caesar? You know, et tu brute, that, that Julius Caesar, you know, murdered not just the play, but actually the real character. He had a sister who had a talented young grandson named Octavius. His name was later changed to Octavian, and Octavian served in the army with Caesar, with Julius Caesar. And at one point, he had a shipwreck, and he did some Navy Navy SEALs behind the the enemy line stuff, and, and he was noticed and eventually adopted by Julius Caesar, and he was made his official heir. Within a year, Caesar was murdered, you know, and uh, Octavian then took his place and he joined with Mark Anthony, not Jennifer Lopez's ex-husband, and a guy named Lepidus. Uh, So you got Octavian, Mark Anthony, and Lepidus, and they split Rome into three ways, and then literally all war broke loose. For years and years, the the Mediterranean area got worse and worse. Eventually, Lepidus got pushed out, which is sad because his name is fun to say. You're you're allowed to try it if you want, Lepidus. All right, some people took that opportunity. And, uh, And then Anthony and Octavian became rivals until it culminated in a big battle where Anthony went out and he got Cleopatra and her riches and her armies, and Octavian had a smaller force, but they clashed. 
And even though Octavian had the smaller army, he was a better strategist and he won. And so by proxy, he became the sole ruler of the Roman world and he took all those Egyptian riches as spoils of war. And so from there, he started living by the golden rule, as in he who has the gold rules. And he decided that he needed a better title. And so he went with the emperor, Caesar, uh, Caesar Divi Filius Augustus. Now, stay with me here, because you're like, well, you're talking about what's happening in Rome. How does that affect Jesus? How does that affect Israel? Well, if you remember, Rome basically had conquered the world. And so anything that happened in Rome affected the rest of the world. And so it was Roman rule. And Augustus, while they said that he was a good ruler and he brought peace to Rome, he also changed how they were ruled. Before, Rome was a democracy. They were a democratic republic. After he became ruler, he started off as what was called an emperor, which was supposed to be the head of the military. But his name, his title morphed into emperor. Now, me being a geek, I started to say, y'all, this is the, the plot of Star Wars. I'm just saying. And, um, you know, you shall vote me Supreme Chancellor. Okay, no, no nerds in here. I, I give up, all right? Okay. Now, more than ever in the world, we needed a new hope. All right, no Star Wars nerds whatsoever. All right. Okay, here's the thing. And this is why I gave you this history lesson, because Caesar Augustus, he was wise. And I see some of you all, A New Hope was the first Star Wars movie. I'm sorry. All right. Caesar Augustus, he was wise and he was a good political ruler. Some even called him in the area a political savior. But guess what? That's all he was. And he fell short because you know what we needed? We needed a real savior. And so him doing all these things behind the scene, while he was wise, we have to understand that God was using him as a puppet. God was behind the scenes working because we see that while Caesar Augustus thought that it was a good idea to order the census that required everyone to return to their homeland to be taxed, this was actually God pulling the strings because you see in Micah 5.2, it's prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Joseph and Mary, they, their hometown is Nazareth. Bethlehem, it's 80 miles away. How is God going to get them there? Oh, he's working on Caesar Augustus, and he's saying, hey, you got to do this census so that Joseph and Mary head to Bethlehem. And, and that's a passage, Micah 5.2 is a passage that Pastor Ben is going to tackle in a couple of weeks. So hopefully I'm a good hype man by saying you don't want to miss it because it's going to be so full of hope and promise. That's, that's the message I believe he's sharing on Christmas Eve morning. But I can say this this morning, and we can take this to the bank, and I always say this, if you don't get anything else from this teaching, please just listen to this one statement. God is always at work behind the scenes. God is always at work behind the scenes. In your life and in my life, we may not see him moving, but he is always working. One of the best scriptural points that we can uh, relate to is the book of Esther. The book of Esther, did you know that in the whole book of Esther, the, the name of God is not used once? It's kind of crazy because it's in the Bible, and you're like, how did they let it in the Bible if it doesn't even mention God's name? But here's the deal. You can see God's fingerprints all over it because here his people are in Persia in a foreign land and you have a king who shames his queen and next thing you know, he has to have um, the bachelorette contest where all of a sudden Hadassah, who's a beautiful young Jewish woman, is elevated into this position with her new queen name, Esther. And, and you got a guy named Mordecai, who's her cousin, who refuses to bow down to this man named Hagen or Haman. And um, what happens is Haman is so mad that Mordecai won't bow to him. So he gets the king to sign a decree that will literally wipe every Jew on the face of the earth off the planet. Every Jew, he gets the king to sign a decree. And yet God, working behind the scenes, 
uses Esther, and it's one of the most famous verses in the book of Esther because Mordecai is, is relaying a message to her, and he says, deliverance for the Israelites will come from one way or another. It may be you, but it will come. And, and that's what God was doing is he was working behind the scenes. He had raised a Jewish queen to be able to go before the king, and, and it's so neat. And so God is always working behind the scenes, and, and we have to remember, and, and sometimes we forget this, but did you know God never has a bad thought towards you. He never thinks a bad thought about you. When you sin, he's not like, oh, I knew it. You sinned again. No, God loves us. Every gift that he gives us is good and perfect. Every thought towards us is of love. Every thought towards us is of good. You know, some people, they view Jesus as the nice one and God as the angry one. That's not the case. They're the same person. He's always working on our side. And, and maybe you say, you don't know my life. I don't know your life, but God does. And he knows the frustration that we go through. He knows the hard things that we endure. He knows that, that we have some things in life that we wish we didn't have to endure, but he's still with us and he still loves us and he's still working behind the scenes. Sometimes the reason we don't see God working is because we're not looking for it. Sometimes it's the red light when we're in a hurry that we catch and we get mad about that it's actually God's hand upon our life. He's keeping us from an accident. He knows what's coming. Sometimes it's the promotion that we don't get at work that is God saying, hey, I got something better for you in life. Sometimes it's the failed relationship or it's the, it's the person that you thought, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with them and it doesn't work out where God is saying, no, 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 I see the future. This wasn't going to be pretty. Whatever it is, God is always working behind the scenes. And, and if you think about it, we see a perfect example of this as we go from verse 3 leading into verse 4. It says, So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, and to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child." Like I said earlier, the distance from Nazareth to Bethlehem is 80 miles. Let me ask you this. What is the one phrase that a woman who is pregnant not want to hear? We're out of chocolate. No, I'm just kidding. No, the one phrase that a woman who's pregnant doesn't want to hear is road trip. And we're not talking about like riding in a 2017 nice car. No, we're not even talking about glamping, y'all. We're talking about straight up 80 miles, pregnant. I mean, rough terrain, no paved roads. I mean, if, it, if even they had worn paths. This was difficult. This was difficult. And you think about this, Mary's probably like, God, this is your baby. And here I am going 80 miles down this road to get to Bethlehem. But they go because it's God's guiding provincial hand. And so... This statement goes hand in hand with God is always working behind the scenes. God also doesn't always give all the details. God is always working behind the scenes, but he also doesn't always give all the details. And why is that? Well, there are a few reasons. First and foremost, it's because we need to walk by faith. And as we walk by faith, it grows our faith in who we are in him. And it helps us to trust him more. Another reason he doesn't give all the details is sometimes we will try to help him. How many of y'all have ever tried to help God? <laughs> How does that go? Um, Abraham tried to help God and it was a fiasco. Another reason God doesn't give all the details is sometimes we might chicken out. Sometimes God's like, hey, I got this for you and you're going to go through life and and you're going to lose somebody really important to you at an early age, and it's going to change you forever, and you're like, nope, I'm out, God. No, he doesn't give us all the details because sometimes we'll chicken out. So God is always working, and, and I think about Mary. I mean, she had the angel come and say, blessed are you among women. You're going to have the God child, but you have to take an 80-mile road trip. She's like, peace, you know? I mean, God doesn't always give us all the details. So here they are in Bethlehem, verse 6. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. 
And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them at the inn. Verse 7 is so simple and yet so exquisite, so grand. Luke, Luke's writing is so just on point because here he's saying it's a boy and he's going to change the world forever. He's going to change the destiny of everyone in the world. One of my favorite Christmas songs is from the Christian alternative rock band, Reliant K. The chorus says, And from the first time that you opened your eyes, did you realize that you would be my Savior? And the first breath that left your lips, did you know that it would change this world forever? I celebrate the day that you were born to die. So one day I could pray to you to save my life. Here it is. The moment that Israel's been waiting for, the moment that the world has held its breath in. Ever since Adam ate the fruit and sin entered the world, here's this baby born, the greatest gift that we'll ever receive. You guys want to have your minds blown? This, is, this burst the bubble in my head. Did you know it's, ext- it's extremely probable that Joseph and Mary were not the only people turned away from the inn, which the Greek word just means guest lodging. We saw that in a video. It just meant upper room. So I love me a good nativity scene, but never in my life have I pictured other families there in the cave or the stall with them where the farm animals were. I never pictured Mary trying to give birth because it's always like the peaceful silent night. You know, it's always that. And you never picture like Mary just going, ah, you know, and they're like, get water and towels. And then some kids like, I punched the cow, you know, and the families are running around and the chaos and the smells and the sights and the sounds. And I never pictured that before because we have nativity scenes and they look like everybody's like this. You know, I mean, they're all proclaiming the king, but... Uh, you think about it, Jesus was probably, they're probably not the only ones in that cave when Jesus was born. And they're like, can you shut that baby up and all that crazy stuff? <sighs> Imagine the conditions that Mary had to give birth in. And that leads to my first of three points this morning. The point number one was Jesus was born in humble surroundings. Jesus was born in humble surroundings. Church, Please, please, do not let anyone tell you that Jesus was rich. Do not let any pastor or, or person that has doctrines be like, if Jesus was here today, he'd be driving Mercedes. That is not the case. And there's so much scriptural evidence that Mary and Joseph were poor. There's a lot of scriptural evidence. We don't have time to get into this, but they were not well-to-do. Because if they were, they would have been able to afford lodging in some way. They would have made a way. Money opens a lot of doors, doesn't it? And so don't let anyone tell you that he was rich. And another observation that as Jesus was born in humble surroundings, we can be humble because our Savior was humble. This Christmas, can we be thankful for what we have? What God has given us? Can we resist the influence of the world to have more and more? Because here is God incarnate laying in a feeding trough and probably not the clean kind or the tidy ones that we see depicted. But here he is laying there on a mission of salvation for you and for me, humble. Let us not despise any humble surroundings that we may have. Let us not take for granted what God has given us because we are so blessed. Most of us rode here today in cars. That's not a luxury that the world has. Most of us opened the fridge this morning to see a fridge full of food and juice and different things as we had breakfast. That's not a luxury all the world has. Most of us went into our closet and pushed things out of the way to find something to wear, going, no, that's not good for me today, or whatever it might be. That's not a luxury that everyone has. Most of us woke up in a, in a house that has a heating and air conditioning system. That's not a luxury that every, all the world has. And so as Jesus was born in humble surroundings and we want to keep Christmas what it's supposed to be, can we be thankful for what God has given us and be thankful for what we have? So let's keep going. Verse 8, Now there were in the same country shepherds 
living out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in slaughtering cloths lying in a manger. A couple quick observations on this. Bethlehem's shepherds, this is an interesting coincidence, Bethlehem's shepherds were known to take care of the temple flock. These very men may have protected and cared for the lambs that would be used in temple sacrifice. Isn't that interesting? They would be the first ones to hear the gospel of Jesus coming on earth. And so in my mind's eye, I'm trying to picture this because I think, um, you know, there's archives in heaven that we're going to want to go and check out. And, and me, I, we were talking this morning, sometimes we like to scare our wives, sometimes to the detriment of ourselves because, you know, you always got like, there could be like a karate chop coming if you do it too bad. And so um, Stephen and I were talking about that. And I was thinking, you got the shepherds out there in the middle of the field who knows if they have a fire lit to kind of keep them warm and, and maybe to keep the sheep around, or maybe they're just shepherding in the moonlight, just watching out for predators. And all of a sudden, an angel's like, hello, you know, and just the glory of God just shines. And it says that they were terrified. They were greatly afraid. And the first words out of the angel's mouth was, do not be afraid. And what he goes on to say is awesome because right here he says, I have good tidings for you. And what he is literally saying is, I am giving you the gospel. I am bringing good news. He says, for there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the one that we've been waiting for. And I think when God sent his angel, it's like a proud dad who is so excited that their son is born. They're walking around throwing out cigars or whatever that might be, their celebration might be. And here God just wanted to proclaim his son. And he found these shepherds and it's like, yeah, you know, and I was thinking Angel told me a story about her granddad when when her mom or her great granddad, when her mom was born, he got a ticket for lighting off fireworks on her birthday because he was so excited to have a grandchild. And, and I couldn't help but think God just wanted to share his that he had a proud dad moment wanting to tell everyone about his son's birth. And so with this, this angelic announcement, then it was like, cue the Trans-Siberian Orchestra in the sky, because verse 13 says, and suddenly there was an angel, uh, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on the earth, peace, goodwill towards men. God came out and he said, I got to throw a concert, I got to throw a party, because here on this night is born the salvation of the world, my son. My son, and, and I can only imagine when we get to heaven, we're going to be able to see that same heavenly host singing this, glory to God in the highest, and peace on earth. I came across this quote in reference to this, uh, this passage. A pastor said, let God have all the glory so we may have all the peace. This Christmas, our hope came so that we could have hope. Our joy came so we could have joy. Our peace came so we could have peace. Let God have all the glory so we may have all the peace. Heaven is throwing a party over the birth of Christ the King. Verse 15, so it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, then the shepherds said to one another, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass. They're like, I'm not going to wait. And so right away, uh, let us see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told to them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told to them by the shepherds. So they hurried to Bethlehem to find the baby Jesus, and when they seen him, they went out from there telling everyone, which leads us to point number two, Jesus had humble witnesses. Jesus had humble witnesses. As you study, you find out that a lot of times shepherds were considered social outcasts. 
social outcasts. And, and oftentimes, because of their connection and their, their, um, their closeness to sheep, they were considered unclean at all times. And so even though they cared for the temple flocks, they were never, never able to go into the temple. So they were unclean outcasts. And even to go as far as one commentator said, they had a bad reputation. They weren't able to even give testimony in a, in a court ruling. And so isn't it interesting that Jesus or God coming to proclaim the birth of Jesus comes to these unclean outcasts with a bad reputation to use them to spread the word of his son's birth. The Bible says that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And I can tell you, I'm foolish. And that's what Paul said. Paul said, I'm, a, I'm an insolent man. That's who I was. But God, in his grace, has used us. And, and so many of us have that same story. So many pastors have that same story. It's so funny to see, especially in the Calvary Chapel movement, because we know their backstories, how many of these guys were boneheads or drug dealers or, or loan sharks or whatever they might be. And now God has brought them full circle. And they're the ones that can say, just like, um, just like the author of Amazing Grace, I saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but how I see. And so God used these humble witnesses because once they saw Jesus, they couldn't help but tell people what they'd seen and experienced. And so I ask us this weekend or this Christmas, can we be humble witnesses of Jesus? Can we tell others of the hope that we have with the spirit of humility, not arguing religion, but literally preaching Jesus, the humility of who Jesus is. Or even better, can we live it out loud? Can we live our witness humbly out loud to where people go, I know there's something different about you. Can you tell me what it is? This is a day and age where the world is more fixated on what we're against than what we're for. And you can see that trending on social media every day where um, they just know that it's like, well, you're against gay marriage and you're against this and you're against this. And, you know, there is a time where we have to take a stand for righteousness, but I would rather, and I believe Jesus would rather have us know more about what we're for than what we're against. Because if you think about it, Jesus lived a radical life. There's one point in, in Jesus' story where he's at the house of a tax, tax collector who everyone hated, and he's having his feet washed by a prostitute. And yet, the man there looking at him is a is a task or is a is a chief Pharisee and he's judging him and, and the Pharisee would have been like the quarterback of those days. He would have been the most popular guy. So Jesus was so radical. And and I, I would love to say that we can live radical, humble lives before God where people more know what we're for than what we're against, because it's never going to be an argument that wins somebody to Christ. It's going to be love. Romans says that it's the kindness that brings us it's the kindness of God that leads to forgiveness, not an argument. I'd rather have people know in humility what I'm for than what I'm against. Let's finish our text, verses 19 and 20. It says, But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. As a mother, she just saw everything, and as she was taking it all in about the baby Jesus, she pondered them. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen as it was told to them. Their whole night changed. Their whole lives changed because of what they'd seen. And I think these last two, two verses should be a prescription for us that any time that we have an encounter with God, whether it's coming to church on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night, or it's having our morning devotion, or it's even a Bible study with friends like Mary, we would ponder and meditate on the things that we've seen and experienced in our hearts. Psalm 1 says that uh, I will delight in the Lord and in the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night. I'm sorry, this is kind of a gross illustration, but there, there are cows and cows have four stomachs, and so what they do is they chew cud, and cud is something that's good for them. It has a lot of nutrients, and so what they do is as they chew that cud, they swallow it to one stomach, and it goes deep inside of them, and it benefits them that way, but then they bring it back up, and they chew on it some more, and then they swallow it, and it goes into another stomach, and that's what God is telling us that we need to do with his word. We need to meditate on it. We need to take it in and push it down deep to let it affect us from the inside out, but then at times we need to come back and bring it up and let it 
Let it resonate with us. Let, it, let us think on it. Let us dwell on it and what it does to us and how it changes us and then take it back in and do that throughout the day. That's the, the purpose of a Sunday morning is to change our Mondays. And the purpose of our morning devotions is not just to, to check mark it off, but to actually have it affect us. You know, so what we want to do is we want to meditate on those things just like Mary did. We want to ponder those things and, and uh, hide them in our heart. And then like the shepherds, we want to glorify God and praise God for everything that we've seen or heard. So we should meditate on his word and we should worship him for who he is, for what he reveals to, to us through our meditation, through our reflection on who he is. And so I want to wrap this up with a quick story and a third and final point about Jesus, and we'll get you out of here. And, and as you hear this story, I know you're going to be able to correlate it because I heard it this week and my eyes were just like open so immensely about how this relates to Jesus. Um, how many of you ever heard of Bitcoins? It's kind of a crazy deal, right? Bitcoins? Well, I heard this story this week about um, when Bitcoins first came out, they, the value of them was kind of unknown. We weren't really sure what they were worth. And so there was a British singer named Lily Allen. She's kind of an edgy rocker, pop singer. And apparently several years ago, when Bitcoins first came out, she was offered hundreds of thousands of Bitcoins to come and put on a concert. And, you know, I mean, considering what she knew about them, she thought they were relatively worthless. And so she rejected the offer. Come to find out, the value of a single Bitcoin, as of a couple of days ago when I heard this story, was just less than $17,000. It was like 16500 or 16900 It was just less than uh, $17,000. And so the, the person that was giving the story said, that payment that she would have received for that concert, had she chosen to accept it, would be valued today at over $1.5 billion. Something that had a humble beginning that was seemingly worthless would now be valued at more than nearly any of us could spend in a lifetime. That's the great exchange. When we put our faith and trust in what the world may virtually view as worthless, we get everything. We get Jesus. And that leads me to my third and final point. Jesus had a humble beginning. He was born in humble surroundings. He was proclaimed by humble witnesses. And he had a humble beginning. And here's the thing. We're called to follow his example. Philippians 2, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says this, Let this mind be with you, or be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and, being, and become, became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. Our Jesus, our humble King and Savior, born not in the luxury suite of the nicest hospital, nor surrounded by the finest and most opulent things like you would expect any son of a king would be. No, he was born in a dark, smelly cave. And yet he came on the most important rescue mission this world will ever see. Love came down. Jesus chose the manger so that we would get the message. He chose the dingy, dingy cave so that we would see him on the rugged cross and have salvation. He had a humble beginning, but that's not the end of his story, is it? Not by a long shot. We know that our Jesus lived 33 amazing years on this earth. He lived a perfect and sinless life, changing and challenging everyone he met. He was crucified for you and for me on the hill of Calvary. And through his death on the cross, he reconciled us to God by shedding his blood once and for all. He broke the priesthood system. He did away with the Aaronic covenant where it was the priest that had to, to 
to, to do the blood of the bulls and goats, and instead he initiated the Melchizedekian priesthood where he became our priesthood, he became the offering. And not only that, but he rose three days later, proving once and for all that he is the resurrection and the life, and we can put our trust in him to raise us from the dead. And he is coming again in great glory to rule and to reign and to claim his bride, the church. That's what makes Christmas so different for us as followers of Jesus. We can, ge- we can geek out on every other part of the holiday, the eggnog, the lights, the candy canes, the, the time with family, the Christmas goose, whatever you do, whatever your traditions are, we can have fun and enjoy those things. But I pray for us that at the center of Christmas is the heart of worshiping Jesus and celebrating that holy night when love came down to save us when we had no power to save ourselves. Can we commit to do that this year and every year to put Jesus at the center of Christmas and watch it change everything? That's the meaning of Christmas. That's why September 25th is a different celebration for the church than it should be for anyone else because love came down. Let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, and we just we worship you today. Jesus, I pray that we never forget the story of Christmas. I pray that we never gloss it over, but we realize the majesty of it, how you worked and how you came and and the way that you came in humility and how we can be humble because of your example. And so today I pray that you spoke and I pray that the things that we heard will keep coming back to us throughout the day and throughout the week. And that, Father, we'd remember that you are always working behind the scenes. And while we don't have all the details, we know that you're always good. And so we worship you on this, on this day, two weeks from Christmas, thanking you for coming on that rescue mission. And we worship you, Almighty God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, this is Pastor Josh. I hope this message has encouraged you in your walk with Jesus. If it has, we would love to hear your story of how it has impacted you, or especially if you responded to the invitation to receive Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. To get in touch or to receive more information, please contact us by phone at 806-799-2227 or send an email to calvarylubbock at hotmail.com. Again, that phone number is 806-799-2227. Also, if you want to partner with us financially to take the gospel to West Texas and the world, please click on the Donate button on calvarychapellubbock.org. Thanks for listening to the podcast. May God richly bless you.